This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Melman talks with artist and designer Jennifer Morla about her career working for Levi's, Design Within Reach, and her own company, and about what makes a design effective. Well, I think whenever you can engage the audience in actually a physical way, you will have a more meaningful relationship and communication with them. Here's Debbie Melman. If you're a designer and your clients include Apple, the New York Times, and Levi's, you're probably doing something right. And the graphic designer and artist Jennifer Morla has been doing things right for such a long time that she was just awarded the graphic design industry's highest award of recognition, the AIGA Medal. Welcome to Design Matters, Jennifer, and congratulations on receiving the very prestigious AIGA Medal. Thank you so much, Debbie. So... Is it true that when you were 11 years old, living in New York City, you wanted to become a secret agent? <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that was the year the you know, the 60s were the year of secret agents. And, you know, there was James Bond and Mission Impossible, all that sort of, you know, television. And, yeah, there was sixth grade. Yes, I think I was even maybe wearing white go-go boots. <laughs> So what made you change your mind and decide to become a graphic designer? Well, design was really driven for me um, by visiting the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And my mother, who was a art history major in college, loved to go see Matisse's Goldfish. And I wandered off to the design wing and saw um, the Rietveld chair, thinking, of course, it was from 1964. Of course. And when I looked at it, so I was 18, I believe, and realized that design had history. And it really opened my eyes and really I have to really credit the museum as well as the Guggenheim. One of the first shows that I saw there, once again, my mother taking me there, was a Warhol show. And one of the wonderful aspects of the architecture, Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, is that because it's the spiral, and of course there's a lot of controversy between the spiral and actually seeing art, is actually the perfect environment for a child because you're running down these spirals. Yeah. Being exposed to Andy Warhol, who was a graphic designer and illustrator, yes. and being so influenced by this hybrid experience of architecture and art and design, um, that that was another sort of key point in my development. So you're a native New Yorker. What borough were you born in? I was born on the Upper West Side. Ah, Manhattan. So why did you ever decide to leave? Well, my parents were in Manhattan. I adore them. But, you know, sort of want to spread your wings and maybe, you know, move around a bit. I have to also say that I didn't feel that uh, Parsons was a great school, SVA, very strong. But I think that the environment for design was not as multidisciplinary as it is now. And in New York, I, I felt that if you were an airport designer, then you were an airport designer. If you were an environmental designer, you were an environmental designer. If you were, you know, in publishing, then that's what you were. And it was somewhat segmented into those discrete professions within design. Um, there was the opportunity, I thought, really to maybe expand beyond that. And I wanted to try and develop all aspects of design. And that's what made me actually move to San Francisco. So when you were growing up, I understand that you had an aunt that worked at Condé Nast mm-hmm. and you got to see the creative departments mm-hmm. in action at photo shoots and laying out the magazines. And what was that like for you? Oh, my God. It was wonderful. It must have been a magical, magical experience. It was. First of all, there was a lot of white for Micah. Gotta love that. And there was lots of magic markers. Back you know, then, yes. Okay. So, yeah. you know, 
five, six years old. That's great. And of course, there's brewer chairs and Irving Penn photos and light boxes and a lot of women. You know, and so there was this sort of environment that you felt immediately compelled and attracted to. So what did your aunt do at Condé Nast? Did she work for one of the magazines? She did. She worked for Glamour and she was an editor there. Wow. So did you ever meet Diana Vreeland in your time? No, I did not. Or Alexander Lieberman? <laughs> no, oh. I did not. I was pretty young and she actually left the publication, I believe, in 65. Okay. Now, despite your brief aspiration to be a secret agent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I read that you were always certain that you wanted to be a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet you started college studying conceptual art at Hartford Art School. Why conceptual art and why Hartford? We spent summers in Connecticut, so I was somewhat familiar with Connecticut. That said, I didn't know I wanted to study conceptual art. Hartford Art School's first two years were an immersion in conceptual art. And at the time, 73 and 74, the conceptual art movement was actually somewhat based in Hartford. And there was a very strong school, Vito Acconci, a number of different— What an incredible time to be studying it conceptual was, It was art. great. And plus, you didn't pick up a pencil. That said, when I was young, very young, I had the ability to— copy stuff. I could make a vase look like a vase, flowers look like flowers, faces look like faces. So I I had an ability to draw. And I think that was sort of a God-given talent. Um, Once I got to Hartford, we didn't pick up a pencil for two years. So So what were you doing? What kinds of work were you doing there? Arguing. You argued theory is basically what you did. Or ripped up sheetrock or, you know, did site-specific photography and installations. And it was very formative, I think, to how I think about design. Um, in a holistic point of view. It was a very good stepping stone for me. And so from Hartford, you moved to Boston and ended up getting your BFA in graphic design from Massachusetts of Art. Why Why did you make that switch? Because I knew at that point I really wanted to be a designer, and I really felt that the education I got at Hartford would really support a very strong program that they had at MassArt. So what made you decide to move to San Francisco, give up your East Coast roots and move to San Francisco? Where you've been ever since. Where I've been ever since. Um, I had visited San Francisco while I was in college just with friends for like a week. And, you know, it was beautiful, very nice. Well, let me come back here and just see whether, you know, this is a place worth considering for, you know, working. And I wrote to um, a few designers at the time. Who did you write to? I wrote to John Casado and Walter Landor and um, David Goines. And I heard back from all of them. There were maybe like 10 design firms in San Francisco at the time. So you really were just setting your sights. Well, I was setting my sights because that's what San Francisco offered. I mean, I think that's very telling, you know, your question about that, because that was what San Francisco was about, which was very high standard design and multidisciplinary design. But what made me really move out there, I I visited again in March, and it was 80 degrees, which is an anomaly because normally it would be around 50 degrees there. And I went to John Casado's office and with Walter Lander, met with him. And then the last stop was David Goins, and he had a letterpress facility in Berkeley, St. Anonymous Press. And at the time, he was dating Alice Waters. And Chez Panisse had just opened. Wow. So he takes me 80 degrees takes me to Chez Panisse, where Alice is, like, you know, fetting us. And it's the first time I had anything other than an iceberg lettuce, you know, lettuce salad. And I thought, like, mm, I don't know, this seems pretty good. <laughs> wow. So that was, that was, that was, Fetted by Alice Waters. <laughs> Great way to get you out there. Yeah. That's amazing. So what was meeting Walter Landor like? Oh, he was charming. Just absolutely charming and interested and interesting. He was— um, Did he want you to come to Landor? 
well, this was my first visit. But this wasn't an interview visit. This was this was, but I mean, I was meeting with him, and he was on the Klamath at the time, which was the boat that was docked off of the Embarcadero. I don't know whether I could have really worked on the boat. I mean, it was sort of a little. Oh, did it shake? Yeah, it shook a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the correct term for it rolled, swayed. But um, but also I could tell it was probably a bit too corporate for me. The corporate branding and a little bit too predictable. In what way? Well, I would say versus Reese and Mannering, like Michael Bannering and Jerry Reese had their office at the time, which was a bit more illustrative, perhaps, in their approach and also not as predictable. So your first job in San Francisco was for PBS, Mm -hmm. senior designer at PBS. Mm -hmm. So what kind of work did you do there? I understand that you felt that that experience was especially valuable for you because you felt that working in television was a bit of a precursor to digital design. And it was, actually. I worked on openings, so I would do um, the identity for a show. What what shows did you work on? God, I can't remember. Gardening. No, Gardening from the Ground Up. You know, there were a number of of locally produced shows. KQD was a very strong local producer. Matter of fact, that's where Chris Pullman and I got to know each other because he was at GBH at the time. And, you know, I was, you know, young. (gasps) Look, it's Chris Pullman. Uh, I still feel that way. I'm not young anymore, but I still feel that way. He's lovely. Look, it's Jennifer Morlow. Look, it's Chris Pullman. (laughs) He's lovely. And I think part of it was that really GBH actually set the standard for a lot in terms of what television design was all about. So I worked on print. So we would do letterhead and press kits and, you know, standard print material in order to publicize the shows. And then we would do the openings. And that was really fascinating because at the time there was the Quantel paint box system, which was the precursor to, well, the paint box system, which is what, you know, Apple is based on. And the great part about it is that here the system allowed you to move type, integrate live action and animation, put those all together. The bad news was it was unionized and I wasn't able to touch this equipment. So it was a little frustrating to know what this equipment could do and not really being hands-on enough to do it. And of course, we were in San Francisco, so you could already feel that this was, I mean, I was there like 79, and you could already feel that, you know, technology was getting its roots right, right there. Jennifer, after you left PBS, you went to work at Levi Strauss and are credited with evolving the company from a jeans company, a company that sold dungarees with a Western aesthetic, to a fashion company. Quite a big feat. How did you do that? Well, the transition from PBS to Levi Strauss was a very interesting one. First off, at PBS, there were very limited budgets. If we had $2,000 for a project, it was a lot. The transition to Levi Strauss was much larger budgets and obviously a publicly traded iconic brand. I think, though, that the training that I got at PBS was also working within type budgets was very formative to how I approach design regardless, which is, you know, can we do this in black and white? What is the minimal amount of stylistic or decorative sort of approach that you could take and still message very strongly? So uh, PBS really allowed that to happen. Once I got to Levi's, I had million-dollar budgets. It was wonderful. and But what they were immersed in was – Western imagery and an illustrative Western imagery. And there were some great people that were doing it at the time. Their agency for comb building, the lead creative was Chris Blum and Mike Kelker. They were responsible for anything that was on air. My job as art director, there was anything that was not on air. So anything wasn't a media buy, it was something that I would get involved with, which was posters, which was wonderful. 
And what I want to do is transition them to photography. It was their first um, uh, foray into the uh, East Coast market. So I worked with fashion photographers, big black and white images of, you know, guys and girls wearing Levi's in sort of that Annie Leibovitz sort of style. And it went over very, very well. There was nothing that I wanted more when I was in high school than a pair of Levi's. And I've written about this extensively. I was convinced that if I owned a pair of Levi's, that somehow just by the sheer virtue of wearing the Levi's, I would be more popular. I would be cooler. I was a chubby Jewish girl living on Long Island and somehow felt that the Levi's would magically transform me. My mother was absolutely adamant that the Levi's being more expensive than the regular jeans mm-hmm. from Models mm-hmm. were an unnecessary extravagance. And because she was a seamstress, she decided that she could sew a red label on the back pocket of a regular pair of jeans and that would suffice. And of course, I was mortified and wouldn't have that. And she finally ended up relenting and bought me a pair of lime green corduroy bell-bottom Levi's, which I think I wore every day through (laughs) high school. How were you able to transform the brand from sort of rugged Western jeans company into a fashion company with this cool cachet? But that was their DNA. I mean, an iconic brand has this wonderful DNA. And Levi's had an honesty. And that honesty translates whether it's a fashion brand or whether it is a workwear brand. And I knew that actually that cachet between being, you know, the oldest brand of, in the West and being the largest fashion company in the world, those two could marry very well and really translate not only in the United States but internationally. Now, I know that you were the person at Levi's that proposed having famous artists depict the 501 classic, which up until then had been much more about the Western cowboy vernacular. And you contacted David Hockney and Robert Rauschenberg and Andy Warhol, who actually started the series. And so you ended up spending a few days with Warhol while he worked on the final canvas. You have to tell us everything about that. Actually, the marketing department wasn't supporting me on this famous artist series, oh but I God. had, I had the, it was, it was, it was pretty early on. I mean, no, nobody had really done that before, this sort of cross marketing sort of platform. So they were resistant. They were resistant. To working with one of the world's most famous artists. They didn't know. Well, first of all, they knew it was going to be money. Okay. That said, I had an opportunity to be with Bob Haas for a couple hours and knowing that he was one of the, strongest art benefactors in San Francisco, told him what I wanted to do. And within about 10 minutes as after I got back to the office, there was the note on my desk from the president of the company saying, great idea, go for it. So the first artist I decided to work with actually was Warhol because he was so well known to even the lay person. Anybody else would have been a real stretch given that time. I imagine this was around 83 or so. And I actually looked Warhol up in the phone book. He was in the White Pages, Andy Warhol, picked up the phone. Fred Hughes was there. Hi, you know, da-da-da. Andy Warhol was in the phone book? Mm-hmm. Of course, that's, that's Somebody's typical. Somebody's going to have to get him. a copy of, like, the 1983 phone book to get that. Oh, it was great. It was so, so awesome. easy. It was great. No reps, nothing. You know, just call up Andy Warhol. And once the, I believe it was $30,000 was exchanged, Andy got on the phone. And he said, so, you know, what's your idea? What, you know, what do you want to do? I said, you know, it's, you know, the jeans. I knew that he wore 501s also. And he said, well, let me just send you a few ideas. So he sent 
10 Polaroids a couple weeks later. And suffice it to say that nine of those Polaroids I could not show to anybody at Levi's. Why? Because the buttons were unbuttoned. And so you saw, what did you see? What did you see? This is an uncensored show, Jennifer. You can tell us all the details. Was there genitalia? (laughs) Some very attractive men. So do you you don't have those Polaroids, just Levi's? I, I do not have those Polaroids. Oh, my God. I believe that they have them. Oh, I hope they do. <laughs> and I'm, I was certain that Warhol thought that I was some sort of, you know, traditional marketing, you know, person back in the day, you know, the corporate fashion was women wearing sort of bow tie things and just, you know. So he said, you know, you have a lot of good ideas. Why don't you come out and we'll work on it together? And it's like, oh I was God. 28 so it was, or 27. I said, yes. So – I did. And it was a wonderful experience. He was charming. You know, you saw all the, you know, Dion von Furstenberg and all the, the lunches were amazing. Just being in the company of these people. I mean, I was, you know, in awe of the situation. Wow. So what was the process of watching Andy work? Like, did you, did you do actually do the work together? Were you sort of just watching as he worked? What was he doing? I watched as he worked, but we would talk about colors. And so you were he had an assistant. Uh, no, I don't. I, uh, that feels wrong to okay. say that. Collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it was sort of, I, I have to say it was sort of like mine's. I adore his work. So it wasn't, you know, a stretch in any way. He had, a, you know, quite a few assistants that were actually pulling the screens, pulling the ink down. And that was that. Matter of fact, he was so funny because so many people said, like, you know, he never really talks. He was very talkative. It was, it was, a, it was a lovely encounter. That's incredible. What other artists did you work with on the series? Well, I left Levi's right after that, so the series did not go on. So why did you leave? Why did you leave right afterward? I had worked for the company for about two and a half or three years, and I knew it was the perfect time to segue into my own office when I knew I'd get a lot of Levi's work and a lot of fashion work. I had very good relationships with the five presidents that were there. It was divisionalized into five divisions, and I felt like I had a good collaborative relationship with upper management. And so when you started your office, how did you do it? Were you working out of your home? Were you work? Did you rent space immediately? Rented space immediately. Actually, it was Michael Mabry's old space. So I think it was all of, I don't know, 800 square feet or something. And yeah. You yeah. started it. Started, had a, had a staff of four and got it going. Now, I understand, I don't know if you did this before you left Levi's or right after, but I understand that you also worked on designing the first Levi's stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was while I, after I left Levi's. One of the uh, VPs of marketing said, we want to do an in-store department. And that was completely a new idea. Totally. At the time, revolutionary. But the stores would not pick up the tab. Levi's was picking up the tab to do that. And it was for – originally it was for the Dockers brand that we did it for. And we we showcased it at the Men's Apparel Show, which is called Magic in Las Vegas. So we also did the booth design commensurate with that. And it was a very – Smooth transition. Of course, I worked with contractors, but a smooth transition to realize that going from two-dimensional to three-dimensional design was easy for me versus something that I can't do, like sewing, which is very difficult for me. Interesting. <laughs> so, but but environmental design plans are – they're easy for me to translate from 2D to 3D. So I read that one of the questions that you ask yourself is how, as designers, can we reach out to an audience and make them experience a brand in a more meaningful way. And I'm wondering how you would answer that now. By surprising first and informing after. So how you branch beyond your constituency is really doing an alternate view of what design is expected within that category. 
So, for example, we could take traditional sort of annual reports and realize that's beyond just a format for transmitting financial information. Of course, I'm going back to the 80s and 90s. No, there are no annual reports now. But it holds true to any other medium. And that you have to make the audience want to pick this thing up, whatever it is. So that audience could be you. It could be somebody on Wall Street. You just like are compelled to like, what is this? It's like super cool. So it's about surprise first. Surprise first. And then education and informing afterwards. And there's many levels of information. As designers, we learn hierarchy and how to translate typography into hierarchy, imagery into typography. Oftentimes I say that words are as powerful as images and images can be more powerful than words. Because I think that especially young designers, they don't realize how important words are really and how they can be the actual structure to your piece or the concept to your piece. So in terms of words being as powerful as images, do you feel that when you're working that the message comes first or is it something that is embedded in the image? The message comes first and then it's determined whether it's best communicated in imagery or in type. One of your favorite pieces of mine is the cover that you did for the New York Times magazine back in 1998. I actually still have the issue. It was the shock of the familiar. And I understand that it was a bit of a competitive pitch with other designers when you uh, created that cover. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that experience? Well, Jenna Froelich, who was the art director of the New York Times magazine at the time, gave me a call. And this was not so unusual in editorial design. So she started the conversation by saying, we would like you to do the cover of the New York Times magazine. It's going to be, I believe, our first or second design issue. Of course, you know, you're honored and humbled once again. As well, we don't really have a lot of time. We have about two weeks. No problem. We're going to, like, drop everything to do this. By the way, there's not a lot of money. (laughs) <laughs> it's okay. No problem. No time, no money. No time, no money. But, you know, New York Times New York Magazine, Times, right? Yes. So great. Design issue, even better. Oh, but by the way, that we'll be asking four other designers to also be doing concepts for this. I said, Did you know who the other four were? Yes, she told me who they were. Yes, it was Tibor and Sagmeister, Margaret Youngblood. I can't remember who the other one was. Anyway, wow. I was totally sort of humbled. And then I said, so... What happens if mine isn't chosen? And she said, oh, don't worry. We're going to run an article on the losers. So it's like, great. So if, that- <laughs> so if you don't win, you're outed as a loser. Nice, nice. <laughs> I actually, the, the, the copy did end up really reflecting it that way. But that is, I believe that's somewhat what she said or what I took away from it. And the approach, once again, since it was the shock of the familiar and the whole essence of the article was how everything is designed and how... The layperson doesn't understand that everything is designed. So I really didn't think that they would go with my solution, which was to take the masthead and put it upside down on the bottom of the magazine uh, with the shock of the familiar reading the right way so that the audience would actually have to turn the magazine over and realize that this, too, was a designed object. Yeah, I remember seeing it and going, that's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It's the perfect cover and hence my wanting to keep it all these years because it really did stop me. Well, I think whenever you can engage the audience in actually a physical way, you will have a more meaningful relationship and communication with them. So, for example, one of the pieces I did for Paul Drescher, which is a, does an experimental music collaborative, 
His challenge was that he didn't have a lot of people going to his second concerts. His first concerts were all ten, second concerts weren't. So actually, I printed the mailer, which ended up being a poster, on vellum. And so one side was the first one, and the on the back side was the other one. Of course, you would turn it over because you saw that there was type on the other side. That sort of engagement versus this traditional hierarchy of let's make the type big, you know, first night big, second night, whatever, that traditional hierarchy is something I really challenge and think about other ways of creating a hierarchy of information. So let's talk about Design Within Reach and your relationship with Rob Forbes. I read that Rob said that you're driven more by intellect than style. And I thought that was a wonderful quote. Would you agree with that? I think it's somewhat both. I think it's a very nice comment that he made. Um, Design has a rather symbiotic relationship with style, and style is somewhat precarious. What looks great today will look certainly silly in 15 years, and maybe if you're extremely lucky or talented, will look good again in 20. So great design is, quite simply, innovation that reflects the spirit of an era and becomes a classic because of its timeless appeal. Now, I'm not sure that I live up to that, but it is the way that I approach design. And I think that it was that sort of relationship that I had with Rob where the intellect and the style did have uh, convergence. So I I read that when you were designing the Design Within Reach catalog Mm -hmm. that you wanted to redefine the concept of a catalog from a disposable sort of retail mail Mm -hmm. to a vehicle infused with authorship and with history. And I, I really believe that you did that. I always looked through the Design Within Reach catalogs when I got them at back in the, and in those days, almost as if they were magazines. And, and they were very aspirational. I wanted the, the Nelson clock mm-hmm. or the beautiful lamps. Mm-hmm. And so how did, how did you do that? I think you sort of did the same thing with Levi's. You, you went from something having sort of almost a commoditized look to something that was very fashionable, very alluring, very seductive. How did you do that? Well, part of it, honestly, was once I understood what the distribution policy had been with the catalog and realizing that they needed to expand their consumer base. And the way that had been done prior to my involvement was that they would prospect what's called prospecting to a wider audience. So they would prospect to people in Oklahoma and places where, not to undermine Oklahoma at all, but where there would be less of an audience for mid-century modern furniture than there would be, let's say, in New York or Los Angeles or Miami. To me, that was a waste of paper, a waste of resources. Why go after that? Why not instead think about your audience in a different way? People love to be educated. They love to know things. I mean, that that want of knowledge, it certainly happened, let's say, within the wine industry. Mm -hmm. Ten years ago, you had an American audience that knew very little about wine. Great information was given. All of a sudden, people get this wine, and then they want to talk to their friends. Oh, yes, we're serving, you know, you know, a 1980 Newton Merlot. And they know about it. So it's that sort of education that brings value to the product itself. That's exactly what I wanted to do with Design Within Reach. So what I said, instead of going out to this audience that maybe does not care and certainly wastes a lot of paper, why not instead let's actually start advertising and let's talk to our audience in a different way. So let's advertise perhaps in travel and leisure and food and wine and start educating our audience. And so the whole, whether it was through the stores brick and mortar, whether it was through catalog or whether it was through advertising, the message was always the same. This was the designer. This was the year it was designed. 
And then something about the product itself. So, for example, for Jens Rism chair, the copy read, if you bought one, then you'd have one now. Jens Rism and then the year that the chair was made. So it's that sort of aspect of also wit and verve, which was a part of the DNA of DWR that we got to incorporate with these iconic pieces and educate So you've had your own firm since 1984. What are some of the standouts for you in terms of other projects? I know you've worked for Apple. I mean, you have the most extraordinary client list. Talk about some of your favorite projects. Many projects are my favorite projects. (laughs) It's like asking your favorite (laughs) child, right? It's really hard. Um, The Mexican Museum in San Francisco was a wonderful project to work on. I had them for a client for many years, and they were trying to define that they were not just a museum with pre-colonial art, that they, in fact, had contemporary Mexican pieces. And one of the surprising aspects when I first started working with them is that nothing was translated into Spanish. Really? Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, that was a oh, dear. So the poster that we did for their 20th anniversary was uh, uh, El Museo Mexicano, so we said it in Spanish, and used an imagery of Frida Kahlo in a bende pattern that was part of their collection. So recontextualized what sort of Frida was and then um, used motifs, whether it was Our Lady of Guadalupe or Lotteria imagery, um, to really sort of have a street appeal with it. And that was... And surprisingly. And inter- surpri- yeah, yeah, really done in a surprising way. And also the type that I worked with was turn-of-the-century wood type and sort of cut that out. So that had some relevance to part of their collection. So would you say that that is one of your, your favorite projects or is well, that a bad word to use? Is it a silly word? You know, within each genre, I have favorite projects. We did um, one of our openings for Fox Television. I mean, I'm really dating myself. It was for when Melrose Place first occurred on Fox. I didn't even know you did those. You did those titles? Not for Melrose Place. It was for their, their season premiere. And we did a countdown, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And it, that was one of my favorite pieces that we did. Right now, we're working on a piece actually for... Clorox, okay, that does not sound, oh my God, Clorox, why would you, you know. No, it's once again, here's an honest brand, and how can you really recontextualize and bring out what the DNA is of that company? They came to me because they saw the Levi's book, which is another one of my favorite projects that I've worked on. Stunning. And in the first meeting, I knew immediately what I really wanted, what I thought would be best for them. And I proposed it to them, which was, I think that your cover should basically be your bottle. And so I worked with the polypropylene that's made out of the Clorox bottle and created a bas relief, no type on the cover, all white, of the Clorox bottle itself, which is the iconic embodiment, really, of what that brand is. Art is always in the background of what you do, is something that I read about you. And you have a parallel practice of painting and sculpture. You paint large encaustic pieces. You create site-specific installations, multi-ton sculptures. Talk about some of your artwork. I mean, that's extraordinary. Art is very different than design because with design, there's always two people involved. Somebody has to pose something to you and you are creating somewhat a response. Mm -hmm. It's a response. I don't even know whether it's solving a problem. I like to say it's sort of more of a response to to what's being proposed. With painting and sculpture or any sort of fine art, you are that person. So there is no – and there is no beginning and end. (laughs) Also, everything we do is on a computer. And I somewhat want to get involved with scale and with – physically dealing with large canvases and large pieces of sculpture. And 
What did that mean to create something where your physicality actually had to go into it? So my pieces are abstract, and I enjoy doing them. They take a lot of time. They're a lot harder than design in some ways. On your website, you have published something called 33 Designisms. And it's an extraordinary part of your website. I loved reading this. And the effort was influenced by the artist Jenny Holzer, who created the Truism series, statements that make us conscious of the human condition by revealing some of our frailties. And examples of Jenny's truisms are action causes more trouble than thought or any surplus is immoral. Words tend to be inadequate. And you write on your website that these truisms make us consider our collective moral conscious. And as designers, we often underestimate the impact that we have on the world at large. So as a response, you created a personal version of Hulter's truisms, which you call 33 designisms. And I wanted to um, read some of these and ask you about them. So you, you, some of your designisms are design does not live in an aesthetic vacuum. Design is not solely a marketing device that supports consumerism. Design can be seductive propaganda. Design that moves others comes from issues that move you. And I wanted to ask you why you decided to do this. Do you plan on doing anything more with them? And what do you mean by some of these? Well, I'll start with the first one, that design does not work in an aesthetic vacuum. And uh, my realization of that was growing up in New York and in the turbulent late 60s, the barricade walls actually were the equivalent of museums where you would see imagery, um, anti-war, um, pushpin, did beautiful images that I started to recognize. The one that actually influenced me the most was uh, Paul Davis's illustration of Che Guevara. And I, I swear that that image was what made me take communism and art my first year in college because there was this Whoa, the impact of seeing on the streets this enormous imagery sort of peeling from these barricades was just it was just very influential. So I think that we have to look for ways, you know, that we can permeate sort of media and design's a very powerful tool for that, both through words and through images. Do you plan on doing any type of coffee coffee table book with your thirty three designisms? It seems ripe for that kind of expression. Gosh, Deb, maybe that's the next project. Oh, you have to do that. My favorite, though, my favorite designism of yours was, and I hope this is true, mm-hmm. Jennifer, mm-hmm. ideas come faster the older you get. Oh, absolutely. Is it true? It's is it absolutely true? true. The more reference you have, the more design work you have. I, I often say that, um, at least for me, I only do something three times from a sort of a stylistic point of view. The first time you do it, you're just thrilled. Oh, my God, this is completely new territory that I've, you know, I'm exploring. But it's maybe not quite successful. The second time, you totally nail it. You know, it's just like, wow, got it. This is the way it works. It looks great. And then the third time, you just want to bask in it and just like, you know, let's go for the ride here. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but then after that. You know, I get tired. I'm, I really don't – I want to move on to different things. So that's sort of what's kept me on interest in design. Well, we look forward to seeing all of the amazing things you do next. And for my listeners that want to read all 33 designisms, you can go to Jennifer Morla's website, morladesign.com. Thank you for joining us today, Jennifer. I'd also like to thank our listeners. Remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. 
Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.